Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The sense that people have, even if they're not that tech savvy, if they're spying on me, they know what I buy, they know what I search for, they have an index of my photos of my kid, they, they just have this data about me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. And especially because, you know, depending on which communities you're in and how vulnerable you are, things like law enforcement being able to get those digital records of you, even without a subpoena in some cases, or without a lot of process and, and not a lot of transparency into where that information goes and who can do what with it. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Manhattan is Anil Dash, CEO of Fog Creek Software. He has also advised the Obama administration on digital strategy. He has his fingerprints on all manner of digital startups and consultancies. Uh, we're talking about ethics in technology, the overall frothiness of technology, uh, digital strategy. It is open-ended, and I'm so glad to have snagged you over the Twitters, good sir. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. I, too, am very glad we were able to connect and start this conversation. Well, it was done through an interesting way. I mean, by way of introduction, uh, I, I think you came out earlier on Twitter this week and said, which podcast should I go on? And, and mm -hmm. er Eric Hesseldahl, an old friend from Business Week, and Jay Yarrow's now at CNBC, they, they both suggested you. And next thing I know, we're direct messaging and, and here you are. That's how the magic happens. Yeah, no, that was very flattering. I, I really had just, uh, it was an interesting thing to me to sort of ask people a variation on, you know, what shows do you love, do you listen to? And, um, you know, that, that was a, it was a really interesting connection. I think that's that sort of serendipity that we, that is the internet at its best. I love it at its best. Could you ever imagine being in a room with all of your Twitter and LinkedIn followers? I mean, being in the, <laughs> the Pontiac Silver Dome or something, there's so many people. I mean, right now I have a book that's coming out uh, in, in October and various people are direct messaging me who I've only parenthetically met or, or found me on Twitter or found some sort of hashtag. I mean, that is really the, the, um, I don't want to use a, a sinful word, but the promiscuity of Twitter that I kind of like. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there is this sense of openness and connection. And, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I've been very critical of Twitter for all the things I think everybody knows about in terms of, you know, harassment and some of the other negative behaviors on the, on, on the uh, site. But I think it is still the most kind of open-ended. It's most possible to connect to that person who has an idea that you find fascinating or compelling. Um, and that's still something very special in a world where everything else is a little bit more locked down. I got to tell you about the here and now. Everybody's talking about, uh, uh, you know, of complacency in the market. Volatility is at multi-decade lows. Um, everybody thought that the sins of 1999 and 2000, back when I was in Manhattan with the Nasdaq at 5,000, could never be repeated. We've since eclipsed that. Facebook is one of the biggest companies on the planet. Uh, mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos now owns the Washington Post. He's worth 85 billion dollars, and he bought the Washington Post for two. $250 million. Amazon's one of the biggest, you know, companies on the planet. You see it mm -hmm. now multiples the size of a Walmart. When you step back from all this, do you worry about froth? Do you, I mean, we saw numbers last night, uh, for example, on Blue Apron's IPO, and it's like, we're, it's like <laughs> the world is getting venture capital subsidized, you know, free lunch. <laughs> we are, yeah, we are in an interesting time for sure. I think, um, you know, the, the difference to the, the 99 bubble, and I was here in Manhattan for that one too. Right. Um, the, the difference to that bubble is there are, one, hmm. orders of magnitude more people online and on with broadband, and it is much more global, and it is an everyday behavior. 
it is absolutely commonplace for people to watch a video on YouTube and buy something off of Amazon and, and check in with their friends on Facebook, you know, uh, not just daily, but more than once a day, right? Um, that is a sea change, night and day change from the 99-2000 era or even the, you know, 96-97, like the beginnings of that bubble. So behaviors have changed radically, and I think we need to acknowledge that. I think the second is companies are very, very substantive, like Facebook, especially post their pivot to mobile, um, has enormous amounts of revenues, right? Like I can quibble about, you know, the advertising model broadly, but it is an enormous business and growing. Amazon is selling a ton of products. So there is a lot of there there. And that is a big, big contrast to the, you know, pseudo.coms having huge parties and no users and nobody could possibly watch their videos in, you know, 1998. Um, uh, with their dial-up connections. Mm. So those things are, are fundamentals that have changed. Now, that being said, there are pockets where um, there is e exuberance, right? And I am, you know, and I, I'm, I'm very critical of the tech industry considering that I'm in it and the CEO of a software company. <laughs> but um, I think uh, you look at the substance of the big companies, the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, and they just, what they've done is, is, um, is a real thing and uh, is a real behavior that millions and billions of people participate in and uh, really drives meaningful revenues. Now, whether that translates into Blue Apron's model being you know, sustainable and worthy of that valuation is a separate question. I like particularly, you know, we started talking about Twitter. I love Twitter. I've been using it literally since day one. I think the founders are, you know, a brilliant bunch of folks. And, um, and, and I even think amidst all of the notorious leadership changes, they've been able to make something really unique um, despite all of the challenges. That being said, I think the natural size of the opportunity of the market that Twitter took on might be a company that's valued at a few billion dollars. But, you know, the reality of the way that the, the public markets, particularly around technology work right now, is that they weren't going to be interesting to their investors and their potential investors um, without having gone into the tens of billions of dollars range. That's what, see, that, that tail wagging dog thing reminds me of the excited home days. I know you're a young guy. You're a whippersnapping oh, yeah. millennial. <laughs> but that's where you would you would IPO first and ask questions later. And, and something yeah. as basic as Staples, which was being disrupted, came out with staples.com and, and yes, uh, yes. you know, GE, you know, had G, uh, what, what was it? NBCUniversalDigital.com. And yeah, you or, did or that. Disney had go.com, right? Exactly. Like magically buying a domain name. Exactly. You're worth billions. Because the bankers were there with pitch books telling you that this is free money, effectively take it. And I wonder about the Amazon uh, paradigm. Amazon is now a 20 year old, 20 year old IPO, correct? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it was the old headlines you'd read about Henry Blodgett and the $400 price target. That's now penny ante compared to where the company oh, yeah. is. It's about to hit $1,000 a share. It's, you know, it's worth something like, what, a, a half a trillion dollars. And I know we're getting in, into a little inside baseball here. I'm not so impressed that Amazon is a massive moneymaker. It's just maybe it's a call option on Jeff Bezos being a disruptor, being mm -hmm. crazy enough uh, to fail early and often that Wall Street is mesmerized enough to give him money. And so, sure, I'll take on books. I'll take on music. I'll take on transparent other things. He's not being measured on core profitability. But we saw what happens when that goes away, i.e. 2001, 2002, 2003. Are you worried about any sort of reverb like that this time around? I'm not. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, well, there's a lot of reasons. One, one is that the company that I run doesn't have outside investors uh, and or venture capital, so there's there's a little bit of a um, talking my own book aspect to this. But I think, uh, you know, even if there's a correction, even if there is a uh, you know a reckoning with the fact that they are not optimizing um, for you know some of the economic fundamentals that we would see at any other company their size. I think where you get these extraordinary valuations in the case of an Amazon is that you know irrational optimism around the potential of the markets that they're speaking to, and so I think that's something that is um, it's it might be a bit exaggerated, it might be a little bit too enthusiastic, but it's not uh, disconnected from reality, and I think that is a difference from the if we build it, they will come model 
right? Like it actually is much. It would be much much easier for Amazon to increase their margins um, than to assert that they were going to suddenly gain hundreds of millions of more customers. I see. Right, and I think that's that's something where they could flip that switch any time. They could still, you know, do that and still be underpricing Walmart or anybody else that's in the market. Um, and in particular, because of how much of their um, profits are driven by their web services, where they are untouched, um, I think I think there's a lot there. Uh, but that's sort of specific to Amazon. I think I'm also very very cautious. I, I've, I've said a number of times, and and this is one of those things where I'm like, I, I already know in advance I'll be misquoted because it's a, a an interesting framing of it. But there is no tech industry. It's not meaningful to group in Amazon and Uber and uh, Airbnb and Google into the same category, right? Like the only thing they have in common is that they all have a lot of coders on staff. But, you know, Amazon is a retailer that happens to also run web infrastructure. And, you know, Uber is a, a structure trying to undermine transportation and transit systems that happens to have an app as its front end. And similarly, you are impossible to uh, describe and pigeonhole. Uh, not only in 2003 did Time name your your Twitter handle and Neil Dash, one of the best to follow. Uh, it's the only account ever retweeted by both Bill Gates and Prince. Someday you're going to tell your grandchildren about that. Mm-hmm. Someday mm-hmm. In, in 300 years it'll be on your tombstone, sir. I mean, I what, so. what exactly are you? I, I'm a weird fit for this industry. You know, I'm, I'm a geek. I am somebody, I, I'm, I'm that kid who grew up coding, you know, on a, on a computer at home, a Commodore computer in the eighties and, and, uh, and stuck with technology when it wasn't cool all the way into when it is moderately cool. Um, and, and my career has been about how do you apply technology to the creative domains, the related domains. And so, um, you know, along the way that was, that meant working in the music industry, that meant working in the publishing industry that, and, you know, working with people that created some of the first social media and social networking tools. And I've been incredibly fortunate and I've gotten to work in, Almost all the creative disciplines I find inspiring and motivating, um, but in the uh, aspects of them that deal with technology. And these days, I run uh, a company called Fog Creek Software. I joined as CEO um, end of last year. And it is the last, or perhaps one of the last, of the great independent software houses in the world. This is a a little company that uh, two guys, uh, Joel Spolsky and Michael Pryor, started back in 2000, 17 years ago. And along the way, they built Trello, which is a giant, really enormously popular, you know, project management uh, tool. They built Stack Overflow, which is the reference site that every developer in the world uses to answer their questions. And they just have this incredible track record of making really great tools and technology while having a really strong humanist ethos. And I thought, this is the thing that I have been working towards my whole career without knowing it. And uh, so it's been nice to sort of have a a regular day job as CEO of a software company that is... Uh, Are you hitting yourself for missing the Series A on Aviato or Huli XYZ? Uh, <laughs> Just giving you an inside baseball check, my man. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, I think the funny thing about that is the like, I, I, I actually I had a high school reunion recently, which is always that moment of reckoning. And, you know, they were, you know, they were like, oh, so we, we, you know, we can see, you know, these people in tech, like, you know, the CEOs of, you know, whatever, this big company, that one and whatever. Yeah. It's like, well, how come you didn't, you know, become a billionaire like those people? And to say that I found there being more meaning or more gratification in connecting to the other worlds of like expression and creativity and, and, and culture and also civics, politics, some of these ethical questions, some of these cultural questions, those are things that um, we don't really have a good conversation about or a thoughtful way to discuss in the tech industry, but that I still find really inspiring and motivating. Don't bury your own lead, my man. You are a LinkedIn influencer. I've been trying to <laughs> I've been trying to to drive my way into that. Now that Microsoft owns that, I'm like if I buy if I buy a Zune and I buy a Surface tablet and stuff, That's right. you put me yeah, on you a you have to buy you have to buy no you have to buy the Surface that was the big <laughs> table. Like you have to be old school. You can't do the new laptop. You gotta go OG. I gotta tell you, I am so I am so offended about that. I thought I was a I thought I was an established journalist. I've, you know, I've had cover stories. I've been on public radio, on national TV. I've traveled abroad on expense account. LinkedIn, my man, will not give me the time of day. And do when you I, have the blue check mark on Twitter? I do, but I, well, I signed so, up for that. I, mean, I filled on. out. You're I filled already, out a form. 
that's it. No, once you get the blue check mark, that's it. You're, 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 we're all doomed. Like that's first. I send, I send Dan Roth at LinkedIn. I send him chocolates, roses, mm-hmm. swag, mm-hmm. baseball tickets every week. And this is now the third, fourth year. And I think that that's now been diminished because Microsoft owns them. But that's neither here nor there. I do see in your bio that it says, um, you are a voice advocating for a more humane, inclusive, and ethical technology industry so you're using your thinkfluence to a positive end sir and i i do want to know um i was invited to run a panel um last fall on tech and privacy and and Mm -hmm. cyber cyber warfare and vulnerability and whatnot and one question that that i had for the panelists that everybody kind of seemed clueless about was are we now looking at kind of the three or four big horsemen of tech Mm-hmm. as too big to fail as a problem like a systemic problem that we saw with the financial crisis yeah, i think about it's worse. It's well worse no, than i that. i think about think about google in your life and how ubiquitous gmail is think about apple and icloud think about amazon web services and you on a one to one on a person to person level all the information all the stuff the photos the data the the dropbox i mean to a lesser extent that you have on icloud that you have on facebook and all these places um, I guess that there was an agreement you signed up for when you got your login years ago that you immediately scrolled down and said, OK, and you, never read, and you said, I agree. But we have a lot of faith that um, especially now with what with hacking and, 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 you know, celebrities having their iCloud, you know, personal shared photos just blurted mm-hmm. out to the world. I really wonder about that. I wonder about I mean, people stopping and thinking about oversharing and over-trusting a system, even with double-factor or two-factor authentication. Yeah. I, I tell you, there's two really, really key things that go to where the reckoning around trust of the tech industry is going to happen. And the first, I would say, is privacy and surveillance writ large. So there is the my information getting leaked. That's certainly a big thing. Um, related to that is the you know, the sense that people have, even if they're not that tech savvy, if they're spying on me, they know what I buy, they know what I search for, they have an index of my photos of my kid, they they just have this data about me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. And especially because, um, you know, depending on which communities you're in and how vulnerable you are, things like law enforcement being able to get those digital records of you, even without, you know, a subpoena in some cases or without um, a lot of process and, and not a lot of transparency into where that information goes and who can do what with it. Um, and even just the putting our eggs all in one basket. So if everybody's emails in Gmail, um, of course the NSA is going to want to spy on that because it's, you know, all the eggs are in one basket. It's easy to do so. And, and so that broad area of privacy and surveillance, I think, is one of the two fundamental pillars of why there's going to be a reckoning around whether people trust tech at all. And the other one is around essentially who gets rich, what the opportunity is. Right. Because they see, you know, as you said, Bezos is at eighty five billion dollars, which I'm old fashioned. I happen to think that's a lot of money for one person to have, um, you know, or, or, or Zuckerberg is in that realm, too. And they say, OK, well, these people can have an enormous amount of wealth and the people who work in the industry are making money. But how do I get to participate? And we know, you know, anybody who's even loosely following the tech industry sees all the issues around inclusion and diversity and who gets hired and these sort of structural barriers to who can get in. And when you see those in place, you're like, well, wow, if, if, if the way that I am, the person that I am that I was born means that it's going to be a very low chance I'm going to get to be in this industry at all, then there's no way I'm going to get to be profiting from, you know, what's happening in this industry and all the wealth that's being created. So there's two twin things of, I feel like my privacy is threatened and I don't feel like I can participate in all of the the boom that's happening and and to benefit from it, even though they're profiting off of me. Those those are to me a perfect storm of there's going to be massive massive mistrust of tech, and I think, you know, nobody's you know when 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 a, and politicians across the spe- political spectrum today can say you know Wall Street isn't that looking out for you, and I'm going to look out for you, hmm. and nobody responds by saying well some bankers are okay. You know what I mean? There isn't there isn't a nuanced conversation when you talk about you know, Wall Street, meaning meaning the financial industry writ large, there's just a distrust period, and that can never be undone. In the same way that people talk about media or they talk about politicians, the, the mistrust there can never be undone. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to blogging pioneer and thinkfluencer Anil Dash. He was an advisor to the Obama White House's Office of Digital Strategy and currently advises startups such as Medium and uh, Stack Overflow, Donors Choose. Uh, talk to me about Google. 
I remember mm-hmm. covering the IPO in 2004 and the manifesto that they put out and the, what is it, do no evil. Yeah. Um, don't be evil. Don't be evil. It, it, is that still jibing? I mean, this is, this is again, one of the biggest companies on the planet. It mm-hmm. was a blockbuster IPO. Nobody imagined that it would not only drink the milkshake of, of all manner of <laughs> newspapers and advertising startups mm-hmm. and Madison Avenue, but slurp and usurp utterly the milkshake, having just tortured that metaphor. It's a tremendous <laughs> amount poor, of it's a tremendous it's a tremendous amount of power yeah. in their hands. And as it's a, one of the most powerful institutions in the history of humanity, right? Wow. As we look at nations, I mean, like we talk about, oh, it's a big company. It's not a big company. It's one of the most powerful institutions that has ever existed. In a way that transcends our, our understandings of companies and 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 nations and and governments and all those other things, and I think that's that's a really that's a reckoning we haven't had yet. And I think, particularly to the case of like, don't be evil. I, one of the things I always laugh about, and I mean, you know, I think that meant well by sort of having that as a slogan for a while. Um, but what an incredibly low bar, right? Like you get out of, you get out of bed in the morning, and you're like, don't fundamentally be evil. And you're like, well, yeah, no kidding. Like the bar could have been set at like don't intentionally do things that are harmful to people, which is at least a little bit higher. But they're like don't be evil as a person. It's like well, of course, very few people. But what is evil? What there's Gavin Belson evil like, and there's I think yeah, that, you twirl, know there's twirling your mustache, twirling your mustache evil, and then there's passive aggressive evil. I know I'm taking you into way out in the outfield, but when mm-hmm. I see when I see for example the iPad released, and there's a Wall Street analyst saying that what we're really excited about are these 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 uh, vinyl um, cases that kind of magnetically roll off the iPad, which cost them something like $6 to manufacture, but for retail, for $40. So the fact that they change their adapters every time around. (laughs) And I think about this, this is being the biggest company in history. It has $250 billion in cash. How much is enough? At what point is it evil? Like I, I, that I'm I'm not concerned about. I mean, like, that's like, you know, if you want to pay for fashion, pay for fashion. I don't, I don't care about, you know, that, that to me is the same thing as somebody you know, looking at the bill of materials for a pair of Nikes and being like, oh, well, these sneakers should be 20% cheaper. But why do we, here's the thing, why do we give one a pass and the other not a pass? This is a company that's uniquely uh, profitable. It has unique market share. It has, I'm not, I'm not telling them to run a not-for-profit or be a, a, you know, a dot org. It's it's interesting for me because the, um, you know, I, I have critiques of capitalism. That, that part isn't the one that I would focus on. To me, what I look at is, um, that point about where the data goes and who gets hired. And, and I look in particular in the case of like, and Apple is a good example, but I think all these tech companies, most of them are headquartered in California. And you look at the demographics of California, of the communities that they're part of, and you look at the demographics of who gets to work at the company, and there's a massive disconnect, right? Most of them, the you know population of uh, technical staff is, that's African-American is 2%. Most of them, you know, and, and it can be a little higher, but sometimes it's 4%. And it's like, well... It's a lot more than 4% of Californians or people in that community uh, who are African-American. And you look at the same thing for, you know, uh, uh, Latino representation in, in, in their companies. And, and I think that's something where I'm like, that is where we get into what's unjust, where it is going to have people feeling like there's no way I have an opportunity to benefit from. Why is it? Why is it unjust? It's an elitist organization by design. It's brutally efficient. I mean, in terms of the advertising tools, cutting through all the the, mm. you know, this is a this is a reductionist enterprise as massive as it is. Google. It helps you cut to the chase. So they're cutting to the chase of you know white Stanford or Ivy League educated you know programming bros. Um, well, I'm not uh, being an apologist for that, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. in there. That's think, in their well, interest. That has, that has a lot of costs, right? So you get even things like the software not working as well at a fundamental level for people of different identities. You've seen, and they've had incredibly offensive results for things like photo detection of what they see. Sure. Uh, people that are of darker skin color than most of the people on the staff there, right? And um, and that is and that can be like okay, well, that's just somebody's hurt feelings. How does that really impact? But it actually, you talk about like opportunity. For things like job search, for things like what something costs, there's already, you know, ads that can be targeted by, you know, location, which is a proxy in many times for other socioeconomic indicators. All of a sudden, you've got these sort of systems where they're saying, well, we're neutral, we're just a software company. And like, well, you're recapitulating or sometimes exacerbating a lot of these worst structural biases that we've been working to fix for 50 or 100 years or 200 years. And so those are the things where they, they, the, 
the stance of the tech industry broadly, and I've been as guilty of this as anybody until I started learning more about it, is that software is really neutral and the only bad things can happen from people that are choosing to be bad and do bad things. And the reality is if we have systems that are already unjust, unfair, um, like something like, say, the criminal justice sentencing system, and then we apply software to it, in some cases it will exacerbate it. So we see this with sentencing software that's being used by uh, courts across the country that are – um, not just replicating, but in sometimes exacerbating the problems of racial injustice in that system. And I think that's the kind of thing where, like, we don't have a way to have that conversation. Uh, there isn't enough of an ethics curriculum at the Stanford CS program to be able to talk about what are you going to do when your software is being used as an input uh, to these these social systems, because we always see it as a positive to say, like, we took the old paper system, we replaced it with the new high-tech system, we happen to get it for free from Google, Google uses their data that they've surveilled us for their advertising system to power it, and then we sort of ignore, well, what does that mean about the impact it's going to have on people's lives? This comes out of left field, but have you heard or met of, of Marquise Brownlee? Yes, yeah, yeah. MKBHD, and I ask you, on the very same week that Walt Mossberg, the, you know, the, the king of technology reviews and, and influence, the founder of all things digital and now Recode steps away. I see it's amazing that uh, the, the guy who has a millennial cred, um, and I go and talk to college students and people across the board, this is a this is a guy, I don't know, was it Stevens Institute or something in New Jersey? Mm -hmm. He plays on the foosball team or, or, yeah. or the ultimate Frisbee team. And he has these reviews. He's just, he's put up a shingle. That's the beautiful democratizing thing about it. A yeah, charismatic yeah, guy. Play up there and he did a really great job and he, and he tells incredible stories and he understands the tech really, really deeply. And I think that is the promise. That's the ideal is we have this idea where you know, especially in media and representation. And there was an executive, I believe, at Google who said he is the most influential tech person out there. He's like a make or break, you know, generationally for people. So I'm I'm wondering if it matters anymore if you need the imprimatur of like, you know, and this is kind of related to what we're talking about with Google and diversity. He doesn't have to be at the New York Times. He doesn't have to be at the Wall Street Journal. That is the ideal. And that was when I started, you know, helping build some of the first social media, social networking tools. That was the promise. It was we're going to have these voices that come out of nowhere that are just succeeding without worrying about all these barriers. And I think that's what you want it to be. Now, let's take a look at what we were talking about with like Twitter and the who gets the blue check mark. Um, so. One, it's completely opaque as to the process of how you get a blue check mark if you have one that's verified. Same with the LinkedIn influencers or the Facebook blue check mark or any of these other sort of indicators. Two, all of these sites will show your stuff first. So if you do a search for whatever topic, like Apple's going to have their announcements next week and I'll probably tweet about them, and you search for you know the, the Apple WWDC conference and um, it'll have my stuff towards the top because I'm verified. Now um, – I don't, you know, we don't know how that process happens of getting verified. We know that one of the ways that that Twitter and these other organizations will do that is by saying you're a member of an accredited organization, like you know the New York Times or BuzzFeed or whatever it is. We know that those organizations don't necessarily hire in a representative way, and we know that it is harder. That we know that people who actually have these accreditations skew incredibly towards the people who you would expect to be overrepresented in those kinds of things. Sure. And so what we find in that is, um, well, the platforms themselves are preferencing people who already had all these other advantages and giving them voice. And so we, we, if the playing field were level for something like YouTube and every, you know, uh, Marquez out there could surface and be, you know, reaching their full potential. And I think YouTube is one of the most, most egalitarian platforms. So I think that's to their credit. Um, that would be great. But if you wanted to be, um, for example, like I'm very fortunate. I have however many hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter and I have a blue check mark. The real reason I do is because I've been around a long time and the people who were early at Twitter knew me. And the same is true for LinkedIn. You're like, how come I have this status and you don't? You know what the reason is? I knew the founders of LinkedIn. I was one of the first couple hundred users. And I established myself as a name they wanted to have associated with their platform because I had access. That is not egalitarian, right? That is not fair. That is an old boys club. Now, like it happens to have benefited me, but I'm under no pretenses that that means I'm a good writer or a better writer than you or anybody else who doesn't have that status. Anil, why am I not loved enough? Why don't they love me? Why don't you hold my <laughs> hand and tell me, look, I'm a, I'm a woefully undervalued stock. 
on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter, I'm like should... buying Amazon at three bucks right now. I mean... But I think we do have these systems where we we have that feeling of like we want it. We want it to be fair, and then we would have a fair shot. Because I mean, we are the outsiders. If you're a tech, I mean, this is this is the the strange paradox of it. It's like revenge of the nerds. Yes. Ultimately, I mean, so you've you've advised so Ezra. Everybody acts like we're the underdogs. I'm like we're the richest industry you in the, the history richest... of the world. But even in my even in my space, for example, you know, I was king of my domain for a while. I was getting the TV hits mm-hmm. and everything. And by the way, this is turning into a psych psych therapy I session. So I, I, I owe you I owe you a copay, my man. Like many of my guests, <laughs> but someone like an Ezra Klein. He shows up out of nowhere in during the financial crisis completely usurps my game he gets a show on msnbc he's influential on linkedin now he's getting founders equity at vox which he was helped advise i mean that's mm-hmm. the that's the terror and the beauty of it that uh people out of nowhere could kind of show up and hang a shingle whereas that's and, the promise and i wish that we could make that more true because i mean you know then now transitioning to a talk about journalism and the disruption it used to be where i came from that you had to align with an organization like the new york times it was like the afl cio you needed protection you needed their pr clout and their person yeah, to spray and yeah. pray press releases that's just they would open not the door. that's just not the, as much the case anymore and i look at the people who've joined vox which was an unknown quantity i mean you just took a bunch of letters, and now it's it's like really world class. They brought in the Walt Mossbergs. They brought in the, yeah. you know, yeah. Kara Swishers and the Recodes. And, and Bill Simmons now. And Bill Simmons. I mean, gosh, this guy was like the the one of the highest paid content people at ABC, Disney, ESPN, and now he's talking about that experience and and throwing pebbles at that. How? Let me. You know, that's a that's a mouthful. How are these guys, players like Vox, making money if we don't have faith in? online advertising, per se, if that's kind of a diminishing return? You know, I think, uh, I, I don't want to speak for Vox, but I think, you know, broadly what, what they're doing, what BuzzFeed is doing, you know, what, what a lot of these companies are doing is they want to get enough scale to build a platform where they can essentially be selling advertising across a number of different channels for a whole bunch of different verticals and get smarter about the way they target it and have, you know, better messages to, to their readers. I think um, that's not, you know, advertising is not a new business and, and all we're talking about is refinements and optimizations of the way that business works. I think what's different now is in the digital realm, the advantages you get if you want to have better and better advertising are essentially more and more automation and smarter and smarter um, algorithms are around how you target your ads and place them. And, and then to that point about privacy and surveillance, more and more data about the people you're serving the ads to. And those are, you know, they're really network plays. It's really about how many connections you have, how many users you have, and how aggressive you are in gathering data about them, right? And it's a it's a rich get richer thing. Once you get enough scale, you start to, um, you know, suck all of the uh, potential advertisers into your uh, your little vortex of data there. And 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 we know Facebook has that scale. We know Google has that scale, and we know pretty much nobody else does. And so you can carve out a niche, and it's it's ridiculous to talk about sites as big as the New York Times or BuzzFeed. Or but again, it's it's almost Fox it's on niche, but they are it's on faith. This is on faith that that paycheck will arrive, that you build scale, it and is. then it can monetize. It is, it, it is absolutely a it's a hail mary because like it actually cannot work for all of these publishers, and and I think it there are a lot of these platforms that um, are essentially only buying time until Google just undercuts them because of scale. And I think that's one of the things is that we have a, a model of how we understand media to work based on there being constraints around scale um, that would sort of naturally keep markets a little bit more competitive. And this, you know, there used to be a time when every town had two newspapers too. And, uh, you know, that stuff has sort of gone away. And I think um, there's a real lag. And I mean, obviously in the current you know regulatory environment, there's not going to be any changes made about this stuff or, or any constraints put on it. But I think, um, you know, there's been an even more radical shift in the way media works and is funded and the business model of it with Google and Facebook taking over than people even recognize. They are the entire game. And the nature of any networked model, of any sort of, especially, you know, socially connected networks, is that um, they're kind of winner takes all. They gravitate towards pulling everything into their network and and anything outside of it um, really is fundamentally disadvantaged in its ability to scale and to grow and to attract both you know users and advertisers. And so 
Um, I think that's something that's going to get worse before it gets better for all the players that aren't Google and Facebook. You surely followed the travails, the misadventures of the New York Times in this, um, you know, almost like decade and a half conversion to digital, <laughs> which has mm-hmm. been wrenching kind of culturally. This week they announced yeah. the need for several buyouts to take out levels of editorial management so that they can fund let's say upward of 100 reporter positions and be more like the big kid now, the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos and his $85 billion of net worth. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you think about the New York Times and kind of talking less and less on the, on the biz dev side about mm-hmm. advertising and more and more about subscribers and finally getting people to pay for digital? I think there's a really weird thing going on at the Times with them. So there's this sort of sequence over the last year um, where they say uh, we're really important to a functioning democracy uh, because we're in a time where people are deliberately spreading misinformation and we're going to try and fix that. And, that, and that's a credible argument and a valid one. And then um, this, this sort of second part was you should subscribe to us because you need to support this kind of work, um, which is fine. That's a way to market your work. Then there is, we've seen record subscriptions and uptick because we've been attacked by the President of the United States, and that's proof that the work we're doing matters and works, and this is good for our business. Uh, and that's good. Happy for them. And then immediately, it's, uh, yeah, we can't afford to do all that stuff, so we're going to cut all these people. And by the way, we're bringing on editorial that is explicitly asking for praise and, and positive things to say about this president. Um, that's bizarre. And then the next step is, but one of those cuts is going to be getting rid of the public editor uh, and, and the, what little accountability we had towards whether what we're doing is, is accurate in response to the needs of the community. I think they do want us to have what they call a public desk as some way to respond. We'll see how that goes. Um, I think there's no way all of those statements can be true. Like, I think that's something that is a, that at some point, something there has to be attention. And, and the, the, you know, the, the moment of clarity for me was the, a uh, little needle they had waving back and forth on election night showing the odds. And um, <laughs> as a technologist, as a programmer, I was able to look at the code that made that run in the web page. And I realized that all of the shaking back and forth of the needle was just the coding adding this element of suspense to the data that they had. The data would update like once a minute. The needle would update once a second. And you realize that that was, you know, theatrics that was them putting on a show to try and keep you hooked and looking at that page on what was for me an extremely stressful night and that was sort of an extraordinary thing to see is like they were going to use their technical clout and their resources to put on a show to distract from something that that was about what accurate information they actually had uh, in order to keep you engaged and that was to me a really strong sign of they weren't respecting the news um, and, and so I think there is like, I think people can, like, there's a sort of sniff test where people can sort of tell, do you mean what you say? And that trust is the underpinning upon which any consumer pay model is built. Ultimately, do we really believe that you are the thing you say you are and that I feel good about giving you my money and anything that gets in the way of that is going to be a threat. And I think that's something that they should really be thinking deeply about because, um, they have done a lot of good for the world with a lot of the journalism they've done. I think on the whole, uh, the the reporting that that institution does is valuable to, to society. Um, I think the way that the business is built around it doesn't actually optimize for great journalism that serves as you know, society but as Anil, the top priority. But Anil, what business? Who is getting paid for journalism per se? I'm not talking about the, you know, the old thing at the Washington Post structure before they sold to Bezos was that the big cash cow was Kaplan, the education company. Yeah, yeah. You could count yeah. on these things back in the day. There are no cash cows anymore. Interestingly, there is a model within the Times itself that I think has a ton of promise. You look at the wire cutter, which they acquired which is a primarily a gadget review site, and they you know, review housewares and other things too. And their model from the start, interestingly, has been Amazon affiliates. So they do a very, very credible job of you reviewing. So you want to get a pair of headphones. We've reviewed every headphone in every price category uh, with audio experts, and we've done these tests, and we found the best one. And if you want to buy it, buy it through us, and Amazon will sell it to you, but we'll get a, little, a couple pennies off the top, and that'll be enough to support what we're doing. Now, um, that's obviously a very um, uh, consumer-focused market that is obviously a very 
uh, service journalism oriented editorial endeavor. Um, but it is something that makes a lot of money. It is something that is incredibly credible. Uh, the credit, you know, the, the first thing they do in each story that they report in each, each roundup or review of products is talk about why the person writing the story is credible to even discuss this topic. Why, who put, who made you a headphone expert? Well, let me tell you. And, um, and so that's a really interesting thing. And you think about, um, what people are responding to there is unimpeachable authority and, and voice and, um, the idea that there is a thoughtful way to be reviewing what's in front of you. And the goal is not the sort of like voiceless objectivity that with the, you know, the Jay Rosen sort of view from nowhere thing, but, um, rather a very, very informed opinion about something. And that is something that I, I think a lot of people would support happening on matters of policy and politics would support happening in matters of civics. Um, it, it just would not be, at the same scale. But the truth of it is, if you're funding somebody that goes really, really deep on, on a particular area um, and they want to be the, the sort of world-class expert on it, um, as long as they've established their credibility, you don't need to have hundreds of people. You need to have the person that's just enough resources to go really, really deep into these areas they care about. That's not an easy transition. I'm not like waving a magic wand and saying you can do that instantly off the top. I haven't seen a dedication to exploring that model outside of consumer reviews and products, you know, reporting um, in any institution. And I wish that we would. And I, moreover, I have not seen any great newspaper figure it out other than to take a bailout from a billionaire, effectively. Be mm -hmm. it Rupert Murdoch with The Wall Street Journal, John Henry with The Boston Globe. You hear the Los Angeles Times may or may not get taken out by uh, Ellie Broad or, or you know mm -hmm. Griffin. I mean, uh, this the New York Times is is peculiar in that a family owns it. It's not a very wealthy family. There is a dual class of of shares that protects it. But um, the the nominally wealthy Graham family have to find somebody like Jeff Bezos to sustain it. And I worry mm -hmm. that we're not yet at the reckoning. We might almost be there if you believe the New York Times press releases after the Trump bump. You know, in the two quarters since that people yeah. are finally paying for this kind of, of indispensable byline, much the same way they're used to paying for a Netflix subscription, much the same way they're agreeing to pay 10 bucks a month for Spotify. That's one of those interesting things is we have the majority of American households pay for a Netflix subscription. That is extraordinary, right? This is a lot about broadband, about penetration, about device support, all these other things. But um, people are paying and they're paying for really high-end premium content, right? You know, house of cards or whatever. Um, Spotify, the same thing. Uh, enormous millions of people are paying for it. Um, and, um, and in fact, I think if they, they were less accommodating on their free ad supported level, I think even more people would probably pay for it. Um, and although Spotify doesn't really play the exclusives game, so they're not doing, you know, what Apple is doing, you know, Apple's trying to be the HBO or Netflix model and, and Spotify is not. Um, but all of this being said, users have been trained that if you come in about 10 bucks a month, and you've got a lot of good stuff and some exclusives, then we'll pay. And that willingness has happened through years and years of work from Netflix, from Spotify, from Apple Music, from all these different players. And and even you know Hulu and, and Tidal, like the also-rans are still pretty big businesses too. And in news, nobody's really taken a swing at that. I mean, I think this is something I wish they would communicate more clearly about it. I think this is kind of what Medium sees themselves evolving into. Um, but you know, maybe as a sort of uh, wholesaler version of that, like a, you know, Spotify for content kind of thing. Um, but nobody's really gotten that right. And part of it is the, um, you know, the sort of classic, uh, um, challenge of, of you know, the innovators dilemma of like, how do what, what, how do we transition out of our primarily ad supported model and our print legacy and those things? And I, I, I don't mean to dismiss the challenge, the difficulty of that, but a lot of it is the unwillingness to actually take that leap and say what we're doing is worth something and necessarily recognize that means you're going to be smaller. You don't, you don't build this giant institution, um, with all this sort of esoteric things, uh, in these, you know, new models. And I think that's something that's really, really hard for people to understand is it's platform first. And, and the only, one of the hardest reckonings around that is the only companies that have 
the scale to do that um, because they have the successful digital platforms that people read on is essentially Facebook um, and Google with YouTube. And, um, you know, in those cases, they're not willing to do the news themselves because why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Of course. And uh, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'm curious to, mm-hmm. to, to port this conversation into the grand disruption you're seeing across television writ large. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 41 years old, but I actually feel like an old man when I turn on the Comcast <laughs> cable box and watch. I mean, I, I, again, I've talked to 20-somethings and lectured at universities and business schools. None of those kids pays for cable or has a mm-hmm. TV. Yeah. I feel like there's still a crap ton of money still in these networks in the NBC, Universal, Comcast, yes. CBS, ABC, Cap Cities, Disney infrastructure. And Madison Avenue is very much hardwired into that. And there's a lot of fear and loathing going on in ad agencies right now. That seems like it's on the brink of a massive generational disruption. You just go out and poll people you talk to, people do not want to pay for cable. They don't want the waste of $130 a month for whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. And for a lot that I don't watch, they want to go a la carte. By the way, if they're not borrowing their brother's Netflix or HBO Go right. subscription, right? So this is a really great question. This is actually, I, I um, years ago had started a consultancy that did media strategy and called Activate. And we did, we looked into this exact issue. And there's a couple things here. So I also am 41. I don't have a cable box. I don't have a TV. Um, so I don't know what you old fogies do, but we're part of the future. <laughs> and, and we don't, we don't really like to deal with all that stuff, but actually we, you know, what the, what the research found that, that, uh, you know, the team had done was, um, everybody hates their cable company, right? First of all, everybody does. Every, nobody's like, I love Comcast. And two, despite that, it's not going to fall off a cliff. There's not going to be this giant cord cutting moment where everybody leaves. And the reason why is um, broadband monopolies. Even if you say, I hate my cable company, I'm getting rid of my cable box, and I'm probably this person. Uh, I don't I don't want to do any of that stuff. I just use it, my Apple TV and my iPad and I authenticate to you know this stuff. First of all, for most of the providers, putting aside like HBO Now versus HBO Go, for most of the providers, you have to authenticate to a cable subscription anyway. If you want to see what you're doing, so you end up paying some provider in order to say, I've got access to this content, anything that's premium. Um, now, if Netflix has enough shows for you or Hulu has enough shows for you, um, then that's fine. You don't need to do that. The second part is the broadband provider is usually the cable company, right? So I, I, I would need to have broadband at home. I have Verizon Fios. I don't have any great love for Verizon, but here we are. I'm paying them anyway. And then it's like, okay, well, how much does it cost to get the fastest speed broadband I can get at home. And the long story short is uh, I can pay a hundred bucks a month for that connectivity, or I can pay a hundred bucks a month for the same connectivity as a triple play with a landline phone that I will also never use and a cable box that I will never use. Um, and uh, that's the only way to get the higher speed that I want. So they've done the, so the bundling so effectively that they, and part of it is they want to report to their shareholders, look how many people that we have uh, paying us for a TV service. Um, and then the last part is the the model of all of the cable uh, content providers rec- is dependent on that per user model, right? So the ESPNs of the world, the you know MPVs of the world, they are saying we want to get our pennies or dollar per subscriber from Comcast, from you know uh, Spectrum, from whatever the the cable provider is. That's not going to go away either. People want that content. That's who's going to pay those billions of dollars in rights for the NFL and the Olympics and all these other things, you know, the Oscars. And so given that that's all there and that the advertising money isn't enough to pay for Game of Thrones on its own, because there isn't, you know, there aren't ads on HBO, um, that stuff is so entrenched. And, and I think that's something, that's one of the reasons why even when people hate their cable company and they're fully digital and they want to be cord cutters and they think they're part of the future, you still end up paying the same companies you know, it's, whether the money comes out of your left pocket or your right pocket doesn't make that big a difference. And I think the fact that there is that monopoly connection and there isn't any market movement towards, you know, uh, regulating competition in that market and making it more competitive um, things means things aren't going to change that quick. Uh, I hope they do. I hope things like YouTube TV take off. I hope that we have new models where people can pay a la carte for the content that they want and that there's this unbundling. But in a world where net neutrality is being dismantled, 
uh, things are going to get worse, a lot worse, before they get better. In the minute or so we have left with you, Mr. Anil Dash, give us your best advice to content creators, be they journalism students or people who are looking into this this great unknown, but it's an exciting unknown because of someone like a Marcus Brownlee could you know, if you have the raw content, this is the, the Chris Anderson paradigm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, long tail, you can go out. You don't have to intern yeah. for eight years at the New York Times to get time of day or at a radio studio. Uh, the future is now. That's that's a great question. Uh, you know, a lot of people know me as a Prince fan. And one of the things I always think about uh, learning from his career is, you know, one, it helps to be a genius, which is great. But two, um, owning the distribution and the way that your content goes out in the world and reckoning with the partnerships and the agreements you make for how to get it distributed out that and in front of people really matters. You know, he fought for years for control of his work. But I look in today's world, choosing the platforms, you know, whether that's the YouTubes and Facebooks of the world uh, or the, you know, the WordPress or the mediums or the LinkedIn's of the world for publishing on, um, you have to really think about, uh, one, do you own the content? Two, what are the terms on which it's being distributed? Three, what relationship do you have with the people who are reading and consuming it and hearing your voice? And do you control the relationship with them or to some other platform? What choices are you making on behalf of your audience, your readers, your community about their information being given up or being, you know, uh, sort of siphoned into one of these uh, big platforms? And I look at this for like, you know, we run a community called Glitch, which is a community of coders that can create. And it's, it's like any other creative community. We want it to be a broad basic of creators and anybody can make what they want and they own what they make. And the hardest part we have in getting people to build their apps, that whatever they can dream and collaborate together, the tools are great, the technology is great, they find the experience fun. What they are challenged with is they're so used to all of the creative, expressive platforms they're on, it's kind of taking ownership of their work, that they're so used to having to give up control over their work that they're afraid whenever they try out a new tool, a new platform, or put their voice out there or their ideas out there that they're going to lose control over it. They intuitively think the internet is about losing ownership or control over what you make. That's the kind of thing that only changes by each of us being thoughtful whenever we create something to look at the terms upon which it is being put out in the world and make sure those are terms that we're comfortable with for ourselves and for our communities. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through an episode called Anil Dash. Uh, I know that was tortured, but uh, I didn't realize I like the it. extent of your Prince love. Uh, I'm a big fan of your comedies, Anil Dash. Um, I'm so grateful to you for setting aside the time to do this. I hope you got something out of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Anil Dash, the CEO of Fog Creek Software, also an advisor previously uh, on digital to the Obama White House. He's advised Vox. He's advised Medium. It has been a privilege and an honor, sir. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can check us on Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Um, we have not been blogging since 1999 like Anil Dash, but uh, we are certainly available on uh, all the old Instablogger apps and Friendster and uh, Napster and Livewire, you name it. I am Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Bye.